Hi, Serena. How are you? Hello. Good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. How's your Friday going? Oh, it's moving along. So we get the Levin Lab update today. This is going to be cool. Yep. Are you a fan of the queen and the monarchy? I thought there's a lot of rooms about, you know, king. I'm really not. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's amusing how much fanfare goes on around that. I, I'm puzzled. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Oh, me too. Hi, John. How are you? You want to come up? Hi, everyone. We'll start on top of the hour. Thanks for being here. Um, Hey everyone, um, we will start in around seven minutes. Thank you for coming. If you would like, feel free to share the room. Um, it will be a really interesting discussion. Um, Professor Levine, he was here before. Um, he shared his research about Xenobots and um, also about mind, um, how the mind develops um, based on synthetic and also organoid, like organ robots and so on. So um, to human minds, um, he has really interesting and groundbreaking research. So yeah, it will be a great discussion. So thanks for coming everyone. His lab link is pinned to the top. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, just this year, how much major stuff he published. I pinned, um, I added the link of, you know, the publications on his website. And you can see what he just published this year, which is quite impressive. Yeah, he published already six papers so far in major journals. So, yeah. <laughs> I think for you will be also interesting, Serena, because his the paper that he published 
this year about um, about uh, cognition and um, self um, organizing um, um, morphogenic pattern formation also related to gap junctions uh, I think will be really interesting for you how they kind of self-organize and then if you disrupt this organizations how will be then self-generating again and gap junctions are involved so um, I think you would like that yeah I'm really sort of digging into that just in the in you know work with cell shop and understanding uh, methods and algorithms for you know for cellular development and how we might abstract those and for useful applications so this will be some really interesting stuff hey wisdom hello looking forward to this Uh, hi, Wisdom. Did you get the chance to read um, the paper about the self-organizing, you know, embryos and how gap junctions are involved? Well, I, I'll, I'll add the link to the chat. Is it uh, Dr. Levin's work? I, I, I haven't, but, but I am curious. Yeah, mm -hmm, exactly. So that was published recently um, in Entropy, uh, the journal Entropy. Minimal developmental computation, a causal network approach to understand morphogenetic pattern formation. It's really interesting. It's uh, quite amazing work. Hi, Michael. How are you? Thank you for coming. Can you hear us well, Mike? I think you're oh, there. You go. Hello, are you able to hear me? Yes, now we are. Ah, excellent, excellent. Yeah, good to good to hear from you again. Yeah, good to hear from you. I'm so excited. Um, thank you for coming, and I. Put up your um, lab website with the research this time, and then I added in the chat the link to the publication list, and then a really cool, <laughs> so interesting publication you published in Entropy recently, which is so exciting. Um, I shared in the chat those resources, so I don't know That's if you wanted to change that or if you want to 
Let me see. Well, I'm on the. I'm gonna be uh, honest and tell you that I have no idea. So I'm on the phone. I'm on a phone, right? And I have no idea how to see or change uh, any of that. I'm just happy I got on the voice thing. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I made your model, so in theory you could, but it's it's really you know it's really up to you. You could in theory, like how you in general just to show you in general change a link is. Under the leaf quietly, there are like three little dots. If you click on that, then if you scroll down, there's pinned link. And if you click on pinned link, um, you could change the link to something else that, that you that you would like. <laughs> All right. I think, I think I'm going to leave it alone because uh, I'll probably end up disconnecting myself if I start messing with it. So. Uh, it's okay. We can keep whatever. Um, actually, on my website, the uh, the actual research page really needs to be updated, um, and uh, I'm working on that. But uh, it's not it's not live yet. But the publications are completely up to date. And also, the other thing that people can take a look at that's uh, that's also up to date is the tab that says presentations. So there, you will see um, some interviews, and then further down the page, some actual talks um, that I've given. And so that that's that stuff is is up to date. Okay, perfect. I will then let me just um, switch it to the publications then, and um, uh, take me just a second, and then we can start. Uh, yeah, can everyone um, click and see that? Yeah, I think. Yeah, now it's now it's up. Now it should be up. Perfect. So um, yeah, welcome everyone to Science Society here today. And of course, a special welcome uh, to Mike. Um, and uh, we are so excited that you came back to us again to talk about your research. Yeah, it's thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's always fascinating. But before I start, for people that uh, maybe were not here before, um, that, you know, join us uh, newly. Let me uh, give you a short um, introduction. So uh, Dr. Michael Levine, he's a Vaneva Bush professor, distinguished professor in biology, director of the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts, director of Tufts Center for Gen Regenerative and Developmental Biology. He has a dual bachelor science degree in biology and computer science. He did his PhD at Harvard in genetics, and he did a postdoc at Harvard Med in cell biology. And then he started his lab at Forsyth University in 2000, and now he's at Tufts University and Harvard's Swiss Institute. Um, and in his lab, he works on the intersection of developmental biophysics, cognitive science, and computer science. And he would really like to understand with this research how large minds arise out of proto-cognitive um, subunits in diverse media. But if you look at this publication um, website, um, you can really see how broad, like um, Mike, your research is from a really novel uh, cancer um, research to developing new treatment ways of, you know, 
technology and treatment for cancer to um, xenobots and uh, computation, regenerative med like medicine and research. It's it's astonishing. So I don't think we did that before. Uh, and if it's okay with you, I would like to ask you a question. How came that you chose this path of science? Like, um, you know, was it always a dream of yours or was it like something that sparked your interest and you chose science for your life? Um, well, uh, let's see. Uh, well, a couple of things. So, so one is that um, all of the things that all, all of the topic areas that you went through, you know, for my website, I mean, they sound like a million different things, but actually they are all within, uh, they, they all serve a single uh, purpose, actually. And so, so all the stuff, the regenerative medicine, the birth defects, the cancer, the, the AI work, the xenobots, they're all part of a, um, a larger uh, kind of uh, single goal of, of our group which is to understand mind in very different embodiments. So, so we're interested in artificial agents, synthetic agents. Um, we're interested in how cells make decisions, how tissues and organs make decisions, uh, memory and um, uh, goal-directed behavior in all sorts of unusual places out, outside of brains where, where you know, other people may not, may not be looking for it. So, so, so that has all kinds of uh, practical applications, right? If you, if you understand how cells make decisions as a collective to build a, an organ of a particular shape, then you have something that might be uh, able to be used to to repair birth defects or maybe regrow new organs and and, and so on. So all, all of these things are connected fundamentally. And that's this question is something that I've been really interested in since I was very young. I mean, like like very young. So I've I've always wanted to be a scientist. Um, I've always been interested in this question of used to when I when I was a small kid, I used to play with bugs and insects and, and uh, you know, take radios apart and, and th that kind of stuff. And I was just, yeah, this is something from the earliest age that I was interested in. So I'm still I'm still kind of amazed at it. Every once in a while, I wake up in the morning and say just to think that uh, I, I am, in fact, a scientist and I get to play with with these amazing toys and work with uh, people to answer some of these questions or at least try to answer some of these questions. Um, yeah, it's just uh, it's it's still still amazing to me. Well, that's that's amazing that you always had this passion and that you um, you know you went with it and that you you know gave humanity all this um, this progress and a very novel progressive way of thinking about mind. Um, I think, you know, about mind, how life kind of organizes itself, which is very different from, I think, um, previous perspectives. Um, so, so you said that you always wanted to go in that direction. Yeah. When, when, so what was like the groundbreaking experiment? Like if you want to share with the audience that doesn't, you know, know your work so well, like that kind of showed you okay this is it this was kind of right like my theory is what i thought it is or was it really maybe you had very different theories in your mind but then you know your results kind of um showed you the way to this type of um thinking about how life works and organizes and mind works 
Yeah, um, I mean, there's no there's no one single experiment that 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 proves the whole thing because there are lots of ideas and uh, it it's uh, at, le at least and, and you know the the bigger the idea the the more um, uh, time and evidence it takes to, uh, to 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 make progress on it. But um, I've I've been for for a very long time uh, following along this idea and you know sort of r rolling it out slowly because. Uh, the reality is that uh, if you if you say things that are sort of too out of the box too early and 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 freak people out early, then it becomes very hard to uh, advance to the point where you have you you are able to uh, be competitive for research money and you have a good lab and so on and so you have to sort of um, r r roll out these ideas uh, proportionally to to the evidence that that you're able to, to to gather and so so I couldn't on day one say everything that I thought and uh, you know with time I'm able to uh, kind of uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to be in a position to be able to uh, sort of uh, pull out more and more unusual ideas and actually have um, have people to 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 help me um, see if they're right. Uh, so that sort of thing has been going on for a really long time. And I started I started by asking uh, when I was um, when I was a graduate student uh, by asking very basic questions about how what, what the, the relationship between large scale shape and the genome. So so specifically left right asymmetry. So well, I'm, I'm at, at the time uh, I, I, I was maybe best known for the left-right asymmetry, or because looking at uh, looking at your body, all normal um, humans and, and most most animals, in fact, have consistent asymmetry. So your heart is on one side, your liver is on the other side, and so on. And you can ask a question: How do early embryos know which side is left and which side is right? Now. Typically, when you ask questions about uh, your body shape and embryo structure and so on, people immediately think of the genome. But genomes can't tell left from right. Yeah, chem chemical reactions like that uh, just don't distinguish left from right. So there's this amazingly interesting question of uh, how, how it is that that every embryo solves solves this problem in a universe that does not macroscopically anyway doesn't distinguish left from right, and so. I, I started out by identifying a bunch of genes that were only expressed on one side of the body. So I found the first left-sided genes and then some right-sided genes that ultimately control the bending of the heart and, and all of that. But this, of course, still just leads to the question uh, of, okay, the very first gene to be expressed on one side of the body, how did it know to go to that side? And so that tells you that upstream of any of this uh, transcription and genetics lies physics, because that's the only way that you're going to really distinguish left from right. And so um, so after that, as a, as a, as a postdoc, I started uh, uh, I, I was able to start studying something that I was really interested in for a very long time, which is bioelectricity. And this is the way that cells and tissues communicate with each other electrically. And I was able to show that some of this electrical communication was uh, was was what later allows the cells to figure out what side of the body they're on and turn on the appropriate genes. And uh, that led to a lot of work on uh, manipulating these electrical conversations between cells. And I mean, no, I don't mean neurons. I mean, all, all cells in the body, it, as it turns out, um, communicate electrically. And so then, so then that led to a lot of work on learning to try to understand these, to basically try to decode these electrical conversations and uh, uh, use them to um, do things like uh, induce regeneration of organs and repair birth defects, normalize tumors, uh, mostly in the frog and flatworm model. I mean, we did some work in human cells and mice, but, but mostly in, in frog and flatworm. And um, 
And so, and so now we're, we're really getting to a very exciting part where we're basically now able to see that these are not just physical mechanisms and uh, ways that, uh, that, that cells communicate, but this is actually the computational layer where, uh, much like in the brain, right, where you're, you're, you're a bunch of neurons in the brain get together and communicate electrically, and that gives rise to this emergent uh, a system, the self, you know, you, you and, and, and your mind and your goals and, and all of that. Uh, the same thing happens in the rest of the body. And this, this, this electrical activity is literally a kind of like uh, cognitive glue that binds all of these cells to a common purpose, that being creating and repairing your complex anatomy. And so, so now these things are really, all, all of this stuff is really now starting to come together from the perspective of uh, the, the, the mechanisms that allow this to happen, but also the computations and and the basal cognition this 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 precursor to having complex having a complex mental life uh that is in a much simpler form occurs throughout the body as your organs are trying to your your, your different cells tissues and organs are trying to fulfill uh different um different local goals of of, of creating and maintaining your body so that's kind of a you know a, a, a rough summary of, of of how we got here yeah I think it's it's so interesting and impressive is because, as you said, it applies for neurons, it applies for different organs in the body, and it applies for cancer. You published this year a paper that shows that in breast cancer, you see this uh, right versus left um, side um, of genes um, being used that um, it's very different in cancers than in the regular um, um, cell types that you would see um, in this. So, so how did you come from, you know, where, so how did you conclude that this could be like a principle and that maybe cancer cells and other cells around the body have the same principle? Um, I think that's, that's a really interesting a step uh, that you took there. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's let's. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples that uh, that sort of I think put us in the right mind frame to to have ideas like this. Um, one one thing to think about is that uh, embryogenesis is maybe maybe the and, and developmental biology in general is maybe the most the most magical process you can you can find because right there in front of your eyes you see the journey from 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 physics and chemistry to mind to cognition i mean th think about it all of us at one point were a single quiescent uh, oocyte cell and so if you look at one of these oocytes there's not much going on it's a little bag of chemicals and you say okay so here's a here's a chemical system um working according to physical laws and then uh nine months and some years later you get uh, a, a complex organism which not only uh put together uh, self-assembled its own um uh, anatomical structure, but also now has uh, uh, all kinds of uh, metacognition and goals and, and hopes and dreams and preferences and memories and all this kind of stuff. So the thing is that that process is extremely smooth and continuous. There is no specific time point or, or, or event where some kind of lightning flash goes off and you say, boom, okay, now you've gone from physics to mind that, that there's, there's no, there's no uh, event where that happens. So, so, so you see that systems can very smoothly and gradually acquire a, uh, a degree of, of, of uh, mental capacity, but the whole time 
what does happen is that they change the space in which they're solving problems. So if you're a single cell, you have to solve all kinds of problems in uh, metabolic space. So you have to get energy and do your metabolism. And then uh, maybe maybe uh, gene expression space, you know, the space of all possible gene expressions, you have to decide which genes to turn on and off. And then uh, as a collection of cells, let's say during embryonic development, you have to make group decisions about very large things, things that individual cells don't know anything about. So if, if, uh, if you're a salamander, you, for example, you have to assemble a salamander-specific body with the right number of legs, the right number of eyes. None, none of this is directly written in the genome, by the way, which is a whole other interesting set of questions. So, so you, have to, you have to do all of this, and then, and then if you're a salamander and somebody bites your leg off, you are, those cells are able to remember that what the leg is supposed to look like, and they rebuild a new a new uh, a new leg. Um, they they actually salamanders regenerate their legs, their eyes, their jaws, um, uh, their tails, including spinal cord. I mean, it's, it's really quite amazing. And uh, and so and so they have to work work in this in this new space, this anatomical morphous what's called an anatomical morphous space. It's just the space of all possible um, anatomical configurations. And then uh, some of those bodies also are able to work in three dimensional space, the familiar space of behavior, because there you have the exact same kinds of electrical processes, but now instead of guiding cell activity, they guide muscle activity, and, and therefore moves the body through this three dimensional space. So. Uh, so, so when you when you think about that, and you think about moving backwards from where you are as a as a as an emergent uh, human mind, and just sort of roll yourself backwards to the time that you were a single cell, it's just very smoothly uh, and gradually um, you can you can roll that backwards. You realize that all of these problems have the same fundamental thing in common. They have the problem of scaling minds, so scaling up uh, from from very very simple um, homeostatic. Uh, processes like a thermostat that all it knows how to do is keep us at a certain temperature up and down to, to match a range from there uh, slowly but surely uh, scale it up to systems that can learn from experience and have memories and then and then have metacognition and, and so on and so so scaling up minds and um, really uh, this this issue of understanding uh, collective intelligence how is it that uh, parts which themselves have various agendas can work together towards much different agendas in different spaces. So uh, this kind of uh, uh, this, this this kind of uh, scaling up and, and and enlarging your 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 cognitive light cone, you know, the the range of things that you're able to care about and, and try to manage. And uh, and from and from there, all of these problems start to look different. So, for example, in the cancer problem, you can start to think about the fact that gr maybe the question isn't why is there cancer the question is why is there anything but cancer right in the individual cells so we're not we're not made of passive materials we're all we're all bags of cells uh, walking bags of cells and these cells used to be independent organisms with their own little little goals and agendas and uh, how is it that under normal circumstances they all work together to make skin and liver and muscle and, and everything else and uh, and they stay sort of harness to these goals. I mean, once you realize that that requires a special kind of um, some, some sort of binding, you know, some sort of cognitive binding, then, then it's clear that sometimes that will fail and it'll have failure modes. And when that process fails, then individual cells basically just roll back to their ancient lifestyle where their self was very small. It was just a single cell. The rest of the body at that point becomes just external environment and then um and that's exactly cancer and metastasis you know transformation and metastasis 
So yeah, so so I so I think all these problems start to look a little bit different, and and thus the solutions to them start to look a little bit different. If we think about the deep continuity of life that you know brains and 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 creatures like us didn't just appear out of nowhere, we we evolve very slowly and we develop slowly out of out of single cells, and 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 once we understand that scaling and how to how to how to manipulate it, then all kinds of amazing things become possible. Yeah, so that's really impressive because you said that your experiments show that the DNA itself is actually it just gives you and like a library uh what proteins you could basically make um what you're allowed to make so so what is then what let's say what shapes like a human embryo is it like being embedded like in the womb, womb basically in that environment and all the different signals um that they are getting or um, what what does the um, like in your experiments? How does it work that you get, for example, then these xenobots that then self-replicate um, um, and look? You know, you make this different. Uh, you um, discussed that uh, you um, basically used then um, machine learning to calculate which different shapes were ideal, like. Um, because I think the perception is still out there a lot that, you know, DNA is kind of everything. We, we look for our genes, we screen our genes, we, and then we kind of think that's what we are. So, but your experiments show a very different kind of story. Yeah, well, and, and also, I mean, I, I want to be clear that I, I'm definitely not the first person to say that the genes don't lead, that uh, the genes, uh, in an important sense, follow. And uh, there, there have been lots of people who have, who have said this in the past. I think, I think we have new ways to, thinking about, to think about that and new, new data and new ways to um, take advantage of that. But, but, but that idea is, is, pre is pretty old, so I, I want to be clear on that. Um, the uh, let, let's uh, the, I, I, here, here's an analogy that I think that I think would help. Here, here's how here's how I see these things. The genome basically specifies the cellular hardware. So the, what, what's in the genome? And, and I mean, this is no not now that we now that we can we can read genomes. It's very clear that when you read a genome, you don't see directly any information about the size, the shape of the body, the symmetry type. You don't see any of that in there. What you see is the sequence of proteins. So what you see is the micro level hardware that every cell gets to play with. That, that's, that's what's in the genome. That, that part's not controversial. So um, I think the right way or a, a good way to think about all this is that the genetics specify the hardware, but we already know from, from, uh, from computer science and from sort of all the amazing information technologies that we have, that if your hardware is good enough, then meaning it's, it's programmable, then you have the, you have lots of amazing capacities for action that are not uh, specifically um, encoded by the hardware. The hardware is important. If you don't have good hardware, then then you're not going to have anything. But we know now that um, software and the capability of software is uh, is is where most of the action is. And there's a reason why. Um, you know, uh, and and I, and I when when I talk to um, uh, molecular medicine folks. Uh, I kind of I tell them that there's a reason why my, my students when I say to them, hey, how come on your laptop when you 
switch from uh, Microsoft Word to Photoshop, you don't have to get out your soldering iron and start rewiring your laptop, right? And they all laugh and they say, well, there's a reason why it's funny. It's because in computer science, we've gotten used to the fact that if you have good hardware, you don't need to rewire it. You don't need to to, to change the DNA, do CRISPR, uh, all, all these things. I mean, they're, they're all useful for various purposes, but, but the fundamentally, the thing about life is that uh, the hardware that that evolution gives us is is incredibly um, plastic. It's um, it's reprogrammable. It's it's made on this uh, multi-scale competency architecture where every layer has its own agenda. So so molecular networks are trying to do things. The cells are trying to do things. The tissues, the organs, every every layer is trying to do something. They're not they're not passive. And so um, so 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 you've got this uh, you've got this architecture, and. Uh, from there, it's it's sort of clear that uh, that some problems are best solved at the DNA level, and these might be things like metabolic diseases, single gene diseases, um, things like that. But most, or I think, most problems in medicine boil down to the control of shape. You know, with the exception of infectious disease, pretty much everything else. So, so birth defects, um, uh, traumatic injury, um, aging, um, degenerative disease, cancer, all of this would go away if we knew how to tell cells what they're supposed to be working together towards. And so that's that's very much a software problem. So so you can think about it this way. If, if, if I give you a list of um, electronic parts, a couple of electric components, and you put them together and uh, basically they make a little calculator. And when you turn it on, when, when it's alive and you turn on the juice, what you see on the little LCD screen, you see a zero reliably every single time you turn it on and it's a zero. So so that's fine because the what evolution has done is uh, sh um, uh, select for parts that by default give a very reliable default outcome. And this is why acorns make oak trees and frog eggs make frogs. But it turns out that it's not, um, it's not hardwired. It's actually programmable. And yeah, by default, it'll say zero, but you can actually do some, some really neat things by interacting with, uh, with the software, with the, with the internal subroutines that it has and the computations that it knows how to do. So I think for us in this emerging field, the trick is to understand for whatever we're interested, whatever type of um, biological or, or not uh, that we're interested in, what kind of intelligence it has, what is it able to do, what are the goals that it's uh, trying to achieve, what are the inputs that it understands, and so on. And uh, and work with it at, at at as high a level as as possible. It doesn't always have to be at the um, at the hardware level. Yeah, thank you. I think that was a great um, explanation how to to see um, to see this. And so, what what do you like to share with um, what you're currently doing in the lab, where you your work is going currently? Um, is there, you know, something um, that you can share already with us? Sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how much you can share of ongoing research, but yeah, if you could share something. Thank you. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that are unpublished and not yet peer reviewed, so I, I can't really talk about it in public. But um, I'll tell you some of the general uh, areas and, and I'll tell you some of the most recent things that, um, that, we, that we've done since the last time I was there. So uh, we, have, uh, we, have, we have a number of uh, projects in different directions. So, so one is, is continuing to understand how to 
provide, uh, how to understand the, the bioelectrical pre-patterns that underlie healthy or, um, uh, or, or, or uh, birth defect uh, type, of, uh, type of embryonic patterning. And so we just had, uh, we just had a paper out um, a couple of months ago that where we showed that uh, a, um, we, we, made a, we made a computational uh, kind of model that, that is able to help us pick drugs targeting um, ion channels. So targeting, you see, so, so all cells have on their surface, they have these, uh, these little proteins called ion channels, which basically are kind of electrical interface that cells expose to each other. And we can take advantage of that. We can hijack that to, um, to try to uh, improve uh, the, 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 the anatomy. And so, so we showed that in, in previous work, we showed that we can fix uh, brain, all kinds of uh, uh, really, uh, really devastating brain defects by manipulating this this native uh, electrical property in a particular way, and so last couple of months we uh, we we finally published um, our study showing that actually the same the same approach works with uh, defects of the gut, the eye, um, and the heart in addition to brain. So it's a wide range of defects, uh, including genetic defects, which is kind of amazing because it's basically a, a software fix for a fundamentally a hardware problem. So a mutation in a really important gene called Notch that normally completely trashes the brain and some of these other organs, you can actually basically fix that and, and, and end up with a, with a pretty normal embryo by manipulating the bioelectrics appropriately. And that's, that's, that's potentially really powerful because it means that a wide range of problems might actually be solvable in this way. So, um, so we're continuing that, uh, our efforts to understand uh, where these electrical signals come from and how we can uh, manipulate them. We're trying to use uh, techniques of AI and machine learning to uh, help us crack um, that bioelectric code. So, so that's one. Um, at the same time, we have a uh, we have a, a we have projects in cancer where uh, all the previous work was done in frog, where we showed that you can detect and then actually normalize or reprogram uh, tumors in in amphibian models using this bioelectrical um, approach. Now we've moved to human cells, so we're now doing glioblastoma. And so uh, uh, another, a couple of months ago, we had another paper um, showing that um, we can use specific ion channel drugs to suppress the cancer phenotype in glioblastoma cells. This is in vitro work. This is, of course, not in patients yet. So, but but we're hoping to um, we're we're moving uh, hopefully in that um, in that direction. Um, we are continuing with our Xenobot work, so we are trying to. Uh, really understand the cognitive capacity of this. So, so for people who, who don't know, Xenobots are this uh, new kind of self-assembling uh, autonomous little creature that's made from frog skin. And it basically is just created by taking some frog embryo skin and um, uh, liberating it from the rest of the cells that normally force it to have this like really boring passive uh, life as the outer covering of an embryo. And when uh, left to its own devices, these cells basically uh, assemble into this tiny little round organism that swims around and does all kinds of really interesting behaviors, including making copies of itself from other cells, uh, cells in the vicinity. So, so we're, we, what we need to do, to do now is to really understand um, what the cognitive capacity of those guys are. So can they learn? Do they have preferences? Can they um, uh, form memories of different types? of different types, uh, what, you know, can we make uh, xenobots out of other cell types? There, there are a lot of, a lot of questions there. And that's a really interesting, you know, the whole xenobot thing is another really interesting uh, platform for this, to, to, to think about this issue of, of genomes and so on, because 
the Xenobots, first of all, they have a totally wild type frog genome. So we don't do any, we don't, we don't, uh, there's no CRISPR, there's no genomic editing, there's, there's no, no uh, transgenes or, or synthetic biology circuits. These are, we're, we're, we're revealing the endogenous plasticity of these cells. And uh, they're completely wild types. So if you sequence their genome, you would say, oh, well, it's a, you know, that, that should be a Xenopus lavis. And of course, you'd be wrong because that's not at all what their shape or behavior is like. And then uh, the other thing is that if you ask where does an individual, where, where does a creature's uh, shape and behavior come from, the obvious answer that everybody will say is, well, they're the selection. So, so millions of years of selection for specific uh, types of um, uh, structures and functions gives you all the creatures we see today. And that's fine, except that uh, xenobots never existed on Earth before. So there's never been selection to be a great xenobot. There's never been evolutionary pressure to be a xenobot or to uh, make copies of yourself the way that xenobots do. No, no other creature does that kind of um, uh, kinematic self-replication so that they do. So where does it come from? I mean, that's a, that's a major open question that we're just beginning to try to understand their behaviors and their anatomy. It, it certainly doesn't come from selection and it's not the default mode of that genome uh, where, and it doesn't come from the environment because they develop in a dish of water. They're not, they're not, there are no uh, signals being given to them. Uh, so, so where actually does it come from? So, so really interesting questions. So we're doing some of that. Um, we're also working on uh, limb regeneration and now we're, we, we've more or less solved it in frogs over the last couple of years we finally uh, figured out a treatment to enable adult frogs to regenerate their legs, uh, which, which frogs normally don't do, salamanders do, frogs don't. And uh, we are now taking that into mice, and so eventually, hopefully, um, into, into patients. Also, the cool thing is that uh, the, the methods that we're using are not really limb-specific. There's nothing in there that's specific about legs or, 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 um, or arms. So fundamentally, I think this kind of technology is going to be able to be used for almost any organ. So, so there's a few, so, so there's, and, and, and there are, there's, there's lots more, there are lots more projects um, in our group, but, but, but all of that kind of stuff is the basic science. And, and there's now a few spinoffs. So there's a few spinoff companies that we're forming to try to move some of this to the clinic uh, where it can really help people. So we have a, we have a company um, called Morphoceuticals uh, Inc. That's about the regenerative medicine and uh we're the, the cancer company doesn't even have a name yet it's just it's just starting out and then there's another company called fauna um fauna that is is about um it's all the it's all the the biobot stuff you know xenobots of, of various types yeah so that's kind of a, a rough uh, uh overview of some of the things we're doing yeah that's uh, that's really impressive and it's so interesting um you know the research that you do you um so I know I will, you know, there are other people here that want to ask questions and did anyone ever compare you to like the biology version of Elon Musk or some of the companies that uh, I have no, I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know what anybody compares me to, but, um, you know, this, uh, the, you know, e Elon Musk has already been commercially successful. We are just starting. So I have no idea whether any of this is going to be uh, successful in the end. So we're certainly trying, but uh, all of these are very early stage companies. So we will have to see. This is just my attempt to take some of the basic science knowledge that we generate and try to uh, move it out into some sort of practical application where it's going to help people. But we'll, we'll find out. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, you know, ch ch check in with me in some number of years and we'll see if that's a, an appropriate comparison. Yeah, but if this really works, that you kind of 
you know, use this principle to make the body and the cells heal themselves, like give them the task to do that. This is like really real for real regenerative medicine. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree with that. I, I, I agree with that. We, re, regardless of whether or not we, we are the ones to, to do it, I do think that um, uh, there we, we are we are still all of the all of the stuff about CRISPR and stem cells and uh, everything that's been done to date, I think, is just scratching the surface of what's possible. I mean, ultimately, uh, right, right now, everything is focused on the hardware. So everybody's very excited about pathways and single molecule approaches and um, rewiring uh, genetic networks and such. All of this is like what computer science was like in the 40s and 50s, where if you wanted to reprogram a computer, you physically had to pull wires and rewire it. I think that we're looking forward towards the medicine of the future where you are not rewiring uh, the hardware. You are a, you are communicating with a uh, kind of a, a very um, d d distinctive, a very diverse and, and unusual intelligence that operates in physiological space and anatomical space. And your goal is to communicate with uh, that collective intelligence at, and cause it to do the things you want it to do. It's a very different approach. And then all kinds of things, uh, you know, aging, this, this, this horrible cost spiral, right, where most of the medical costs are towards the end of life where you're continuously trying to sink, trying to patch up a sinking ship, basically, of as the body ages and, and, and every success just means that the next one has to be that much more expensive because you're now, you're now again, working with something that's even more, um, uh, uh, even older and, and, and in less, uh, in less good shape. And so, so I think we can avoid all that eventually. I think that once we learn to tell cells what to, what to do, really, we will be like planaria. Planaria are these flatworms. They are immortal. They are extremely resistant to cancer. They are highly regenerative. They repair anything that's missing or damaged. And, um, uh, uh, and, and, and they're smart. They can learn. And they regenerate their memories if you cut off their entire head, by the way. And this is, they're telling us, the planaria are basically, tell, they're an existence proof. They're telling us that all of this is possible, that you can be a complex organism and have all these amazing capacities. They don't age. Um, you know, this, this, is, this is what we're, what we're looking, uh, looking towards. That's going to be the future someday. Yeah, thank you. And um, what I also wanted to point out, you don't have these, um, the mess that you can produce with changing the genome and you don't have the risk to pass it to next generations because you have all these kind of effects by messing with the genome that you kind of don't predict and would be really hard to predict. So I think yep. that's a way better, you know, a better way more. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you, you put your finger on a, on a really important issue, which is which is the inverse problem, right? If you if if you believe that uh, changing the genomic hardware is the only uh, approach, then you have to figure out for everything that you want to do. So maybe you want to repair a complex face or a new finger or something else. You have to figure out which which genes are going to get you there. And going backwards, going forwards is easy. You change the genes and you see what you get. That's easy. Going backwards, which is asking what what genes do I need to change to make a, a structure that's different in this particular way, is basically an intractable inverse problem. We don't we don't have any any tools to to go backwards that way in general. There's a few simple cases where you can do that, but but mostly that's Im, Im, impossible. So what I'd like to do is offload all of that complexity onto the system itself because we already know 
we have cells that know how to build all this stuff because they did it the first time during embryonic development. The key is to figure out what causes them to do it and to communicate with them in a way that lets you uh, basically delegate, use, use very high level signals. Uh, and and we've, we already have some examples of this that we've shown in, in, our, in our work. And then, even, even, uh, and then achieve, go, achieve outcomes that we have no idea how to micromanage. And you, and you don't want to micromanage them. You want, you want the cells to do what they do best after you've re-specified a, uh, a new target for them. Yeah, uh, that, you know, I wish you all the best. <laughs> That Thank it you. works Thank you. out on very non-altruistic reasons. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, me too. Um, I agree. <laughs> so, yeah. and um, Serena, John, Dwizam, Joyce, please go ahead with your questions. So, uh, yeah. So, thanks, Dr. Levine, for coming. This is some really, really fascinating stuff. Thank you. Um, I really like how you're taking developing this this framework of uh, continuity principle in terms of decision making. Yeah. And you covered, uh, you know, metabolic space, gene space, group decisions, you know, an anatomical space, 3D. Um, but this this notion of cells, um, you know, being talked into staying on goals, and when they decide yeah. to ignore, they cut out and become entirely different organisms, xenobots. Uh, really fascinating stuff there. Um, but I want to bring it to a question of what you really mean in terms of bioelectricity mm -hmm. and and the kind of messaging space or communication space that these principles offer to uh, you know for these um, I, I guess manipulations isn't the right word more like advanced dialogues with with the cell yeah is it uh, in terms of oh just to be a little more specific is it turns in, strictly in terms of uh, ionic channel manipulation, or are there other factors, and um, you know, either metabolites or hormones or other types of environments that the cells are conditioned to um, sense and respond to. Yeah, um, well, a few things. Uh, great, great question. I mean, I, like that's really kind of uh, summarizes the whole um, goal of cracking this morphogenetic code. So I'll, I'll tell you what we know, although although I'm sure there's a lot, there's more that we don't know than what we know. Um, what, one thing I think we know is that when you uh, communicate with them in this way, you are not talking to individual cells any more than when I'm talking to you, I'm not talking to the individual neurons in your body, I'm talking to the collective. So bioelectricity is, uh, it's, I mean, yes, you can sort of use it to affect uh, diff cell differentiation and things like that, but, but fundamentally it is not a mechanism for controlling individual cells. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mechanism for, for coordinating higher level entities such as tissues and organs and thus a mechanism an interface for us to communicate uh, with those with those higher order structures so not not single cells now it, of course besides the bioelectricity there is also biochemical signaling uh, via lots of different molecules and gradients and so on there are biomechanics so stresses and tensions and force and all kinds of mechanical forces all, all of that stuff is there all of that stuff is important maybe Someday, some someone is going to find that those things are also a useful interface to uh, uh, to to talk to the collective. I, I, that hasn't happened yet. What we see now is that uh, bioelectricity is is such a layer. I think evolution figured this out that electrical networks are really good at storing information, at doing computations, at integrating information across distances. I think you know that that's even bacterial biofilms do some of this. So so I think evolution picked um, ele electricity as the way that it's going to do this. 
And, uh, and from, from what we see, um, all of the, the other stuff that's necessary to, to build shapes, which is the chemical gradients and the gene expression cascades and the metabolite movements and the, and the mechanics and all that, it, from, from what we see, it's, it seems to be downstream. In other words, the decisions are made at the electrical layer and then fed to the implementation machinery, which is, which is the chemistry and everything else, which is, which is kind of like what, you know, you see that architecture in the, in the, in the brain as well. So, um, our goal is to, uh, is to, uh, understand the mapping and the way, and the way between, between the electrical states and what happens next. So it's almost like it's the equivalent of the, the task of neural decoding for neuroscientists, you know, when they, they want to read the electrical activity of your brain and, and from that be able to say what you're thinking about or what your memories are. So we're doing the same thing, but in the rest of the body. And we mostly, uh, occasionally we dabble with, with neurotransmitters, but mostly we work just with ion channels because the electrical patterns that uh, underlie all this stuff in tissue are set up by the activity of, of ions going back and forth across cell membranes. And, and cells give us this, this really neat, um, a very, very tractable interface uh, right on their surface that they expose that allows us to tweak uh, those patterns. And so that, that's our goal is to, is to learn to communicate through that, through that interface. Maybe someday somebody will find other interfaces, but I think this is, this is for now, this is the best one. Well, so it's okay. So okay. So you've painted this picture, you know, accurately about the electrical layer being um, more of a causal or upstream. Um, the interesting thing about ions is it's a pretty limited set. Um, in terms of you know calcium, magnesium, uh, potassium, sodium, and the anions, the chloride. What? Um, how do you formulate a mm. a dialogue? Yep. That's going to take place over, you know, with, with ions. Yeah. Great, great question. So, so, uh, the specificity is not in the ion it's in the pattern. It's in the spatial pattern of voltage states. And in fact, and we, we showed this years ago, because we were very important to check and show that, um, the actual ions don't matter. So I can achieve the exact same outcome with, with potassium, with sodium, with chloride, with protons, as long as I move them all in the right direction. And, and even the ion channel and pump genes don't matter. I, I can use a, a yeast a proton pump in a frog. I can use um, human uh, channels in, in uh, you know, in a planaria. It doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is the spatial distribution of the of the voltage potentials. And to give you a, a simple analogy, you could ask that same question about um, about digital computers. You could say, well, there it's even more simple. I only have electrons. I mean, that's it. There's electrons and, and that's it. There's not even two kinds of uh, ions there. There's just one kind. How, how isn't it amazing that we can do computation with just one kind of ion? It's, it's a very similar scheme. The magic isn't in the ion. It's in, or the specificity isn't chemical in the, at the, in the nature of the ion. It's in the patterns that those ions implement over time. And so in, in uh, living, living tissues, it's exactly the same thing. The ions go back and forth. The resulting voltage pattern is what carries the computations. And the, the ions and the ion channels are just a convenient uh, input device they um, what 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 really does all the hard work are are the the volt the transformation of voltage patterns from one into another. Well, okay. Um, so, just as a final question, um, I I I never get much out of computational science analogies, probably because I spent too much time talking to machines. But mm. the um, and and we sort of made them up in the first place, so they're less mysterious. 
in terms of this, I, I, I like where you're going with the spatial distribution of voltage patterns, and it doesn't really matter about the ions. Um, okay, so in terms of, um, could you give us a particular example of the length scale and the pattern distribution of of what you're talking about in terms of voltages and whether they're time varying or in, and what does that do in terms sure, of sure. how it's perceived and so forth? Sure, Thank sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll just, I'll, the, the first thing is just, just to address the, the first point. I mean, I, you, you're, you're totally right in that uh, you have to be careful with, with computational analogies like any other analogy. Um, these, these things are, are nothing like the actual computers that we're familiar with today. But, but one thing that I think is powerful and useful about that computational analogy is that it forces one to try to think about uh, the hardware as distinct from the computations that it does. And that's kind of like, it's, it, that, that's kind of obvious to anybody that, that does computers. And we forget how, um, how, how striking and, and unfamiliar that way of thinking is to, to a, a lot of people. I think, I think it's very valuable in this case to be able to abstract um, some of that processing from from the actual parts. I think I think the inability to do that has really hampered regenerative medicine. But anyway, um, I'll give you some 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 details. So so any given cell uh, can keep a voltage in 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 vertebrates. It's somewhere between zero millivolts and let's say minus ninety. That's the outer range. Okay, so you have about you have about ninety millivolt um, range uh, within within a single cell. Now, uh, of course, if it were a single cell code, that would greatly limit the um, that, that would that would greatly limit the the bandwidth because uh, you just wouldn't have that much dynamic range. But um, uh, it's uh, fundamentally it's not a single um, a single cell code. It's a it's a it's a spatial code, and I we, we don't know exactly in every case, but but roughly the sort of pixel size or the smallest uh, area that that encodes a specific meaning. If I had to guess, I would say somewhere between uh, fifty and a hundred cells, something like that. So so that that might be like the smallest unit of of, of meaningful bioelectric um, change in morphogenesis, and it's going to vary, you know, context to context. Now, the, as far as the timing of it goes. Um, these things change on the time scale of uh, tens of minutes to hours. So, it, so whereas in neuroscience you're dealing with millisecond events, here you're dealing with with a much slower, older system that uh, operates, uh, you know, in a in a in a minute and an hour time time frame. Um, but basically, one thing you can do, and it's a it's a fun game, and I have I have my, my my students do this sometimes, is you can take many papers, if not most, in neuroscience. You just uh, drop them in Microsoft Word and do a, like a like a find replace, and anywhere it says uh, neuron, you just replace that with cell. And in, anywhere it says millisecond, you say you say hour, and you've got yourself a developmental biology paper that you can read for for insights about other things other than brains. <laughs> so so basically, a lot of um, and, and we're actually we're even uh, working on an automated um, do, uh, an automated system to do that for you, so that you can plug in your favorite uh, neuroscience paper and get out uh, the, uh, the 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 mirror um, mirror universe uh, developmental biology paper. So uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, what's what's what uh, what what happens in the brain is is actually just a sped up version. Uh, of what happens elsewhere. All, also, however, there's another thing that, that, that evolution did, which is shift from um, a spatial-based code, which is what, what happens in development, 
to a temporal code, which seems to be what um, what brains are doing for behavior. Um, but but otherwise, it's 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 very very similar. It just, it just pivots the the space, but otherwise, it's very similar. Yeah, could I ask a question? Um, so we um, had someone recently describe their research on centripetal computation in glial cells, and in part of that discussion, um, the observation there's 50 to 100,000 receptors to more than a dozen different external signals, whether neurotransmitters or lactate or whatever, on a single glial cell. And so what intrigued me is what is likely to be the spatial architecture of computation in a single cell with 50 to 100,000 receptors uh, sensing well over a dozen different stimuli. How do you conceive of that um, in, in terms of uh, the localization and aggregation and summation and disambiguation of, of single cell computing in that context? Is that, is that something you could speak to? Uh, yeah, uh, boy, great question. Uh, m m most of that is not not known. Um, what I'll say is this: I think that uh, w w let me let me let me back into that um, from from a slightly different uh, perspective. So 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 the thing let's let's think about evolution. Um, evolution is not uh, designing with a passive material where you just sort of uh, find uh, um, you 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 search for a space of uh, uh, positions and, and so on for the for the material and then you can find a nice uh, nice body. What what it works with are um, it's 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 an agential material, right? They, these are cells that used to be independent organisms, and uh, they have their own capacity. They're they're loaded to the gills with sensors and and all different kinds of uh, ways to optimize for specific things, meta metabolic goals and and so. On. And what evolution is doing is, in many ways, uh, a kind of behavior shaping. So, so if you want your embryo to have skin cells, what you might do is take some cells that otherwise would be trying to form an autonomous xenobot, and you search this, the, the space of signals, or maybe the space of rewards, uh, for uh, specific signals that are going to get them to do what you want them to do. So, so, so life seems to have this uh, what 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 we call a, a multi-scale competency architecture, where <clears throat> every every level uh, tries to uh, tries to to warp the action space for the levels beneath. So cells, so so tissues and organs warp the action space of individual cells by giving them various signals and constraints that given the propensity of these cells to, to do certain behaviors, it, it basically uses, takes advantage of the materials you have, which are, which are these, which are, which are cells. And so that, what, what that in effect, and so now, now this gets back to the actual answer to your question, so that, that what this in effect does is uh, encapsulate or isolate all the different things that these cells might actually be doing from the high, from the next level up. The next level up doesn't need to know all the stuff that these cells are doing underneath, as long as it can find the right signals to get them to do what it wants them to do. So it's a sort of, it's a sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of, kind of uh, de delegation ar architecture. And so, so uh, it's inevitable that these cells have incredibly complex um, uh, 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 possibilities and capacities. And inside of them, there's molecular networks that also have uh, all kinds of crazy uh, capacities, including learning and 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 so on. But the higher levels don't need to know anything about that. And uh, I think that 
in many ways they work despite those things or they work to overcome those things like like the Zen, like like the Zenobot case um, where they actually have to uh, get these cells to act against uh, um, or alternatively to what they normally would would otherwise be doing so I think uh, they take advantage of those capacities, but not by micromanaging them or knowing all about them. Um, they, you know, evolution just sort of looks for uh, signals and um, and environments that can where where each level can take advantage of the competencies of the level below it. That's. Um a great heuristic way of thinking about it. Um, and like you say, you, you know, you use what you've got and uh, build on that rather than try and re-engineer something de novo. And that's the nature of uh, evolutionary incrementalism. Um, my, my follow-up question has to do with whether you've thought of looking at analogous kinds of problems in sensing and localization of computation like in the iot the internet of things yep. where you have tens of thousands of sensors sensing many different types of information and how those systems in a in, an, in a silicon um environment uh, can potentially suggest alternative solution sets that might be represented in a carbon-based uh, computational architecture of a cell. And I'm just curious if, um, you know, your, your computational biology intersects um, in the reverse of biomimicry. Yeah, um, we, we, we definitely try. So, so we bounce in both directions. So, so we try to get a lot of inspiration for both understanding and creating new biology from uh, other disciplines like like engineering, um, uh, like control theory, cybernetics, Internet of Things, all, all these kinds of things. We try to steal uh, as many ideas from them as we can. And then conversely, uh, we try to, uh, to build things like that using principles that we find in biology that maybe are not yet uh, exploited in engineering now. So, so we have tried. We've done. We've done that in a number of cases. But there's lots more to do. So I'm sure that. I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on the Internet of Things by any means. But and if anybody, if if you or anybody else are, um, we're happy to sort of talk offline about specific details. There's there's a huge amount of um, opportunity for uh, for cross fertilization that way. And, uh, and we're always looking for experts. So I have, I have a very kind of diverse lab. So I have a bunch of uh, folks that are, um, I, have, I have a couple of physicists and a couple of uh, machine learning experts and in addition to the biologists and the bioengineers. So yeah, I think, I think you're right on the money there. There's, there's, there's plenty to be done um, along those lines. Uh, I'll, um, is, uh, are you on Clubhouse enough to know how to use back channel? Nope, I am not. Okay. Uh, but, but, uh, but you can email me, uh, michael.levin at tufts.edu. So just drop it. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, if not, you can email me and then I can email, but it's probably easier to direct email. Um, Joyce, did you have a question or a vism? Uh, no, not not right now it's it's really mind-blowing thank you <laughs> i just had a quick question a wonderful talk i really appreciate you uh spending time thank with you so us much data's 
Um, you, you made a, a statement earlier. I was wondering if you could um, unpack it a little bit for me. Something along the lines of uh, the need for, I don't know, something like a half a dozen cells minimum for meaningful representation. Um, I'm curious uh, how that would um, interact with like recent um, understandings in neuroscience uh, elucidating the importance of subcellular compartmentalization for network processing in the brain. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't know how they, uh, how much they relate to each other. So, so what we study in detail is the way that these bioelectric circuits represent navigation in morphous space. So, so one, one um, sort of metaphor that I've been pushing for, for, for the last couple of years is that all of these things are instances of navigation. So, so there are, there are um, states, positions in, in, in the various spaces, including morphous space. There are attractors, there are um, local maxima, like all, all this, you know, and all, all this stuff carries over. And there are, there are navigation strategies that these um, collectives take to get from, from a damaged place or, or, or an inappropriate um, state to the right state. And so, so what we think about is <clears throat> how many, uh, what, what, what are the, what are the smallest pieces uh, of, of, of that collective? So, so the, the, the kind of the, the fewest number of cells that are able to use electric circuits to do that meaningfully. And so, so I think it's on the order of, you know, 50 to a hundred or 20, let's say 20 to a hundred cells, something like that. Um, now how that relates to the latest work in neuroscience about, um, what are the what are the some of the the, the smallest uh, uh, units that can do meaningful memory and navigation and so on? Uh, I, I really don't know. I think I think I think that's one of those things that evolution tweaks, uh, you know, at at will basically to uh, to get to get better, to get um, better performance. So I'm sure there's there's probably some relationship between those, but but I'm not sure what it is. Perhaps um, the evolution of of um neurons uh, particularly in higher mammals um learn to take advantage of subcellular computations that perhaps don't apply to other cells or other parts of the body yeah, possibly possibly um it's 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 possible that neurons do unique things that other cells don't do um I initially look if 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 I guess, I guess what can I say if if I had to uh, put some money on it right now I would say that probably uh, all cells are able to do that kind of thing but it's possible that neurons do some sort of special or unique um, cellular computation but I think I think if we if we look at things like uh, lacrimaria um, you can see it um, if you click on any of the talks um, on the on the website I just put up a link to our to our latest site. Um, there's talks uh, on there under the presentations link, and there's a video of of this of this thing called lacrimaria. It's this it's the single cell organism. I mean, the, the thing's un amazing, just just amazing. And uh, I, I, never never mind all the stuff that bacteria do. And so I think that probably most of the cool tricks of that type were figured out long before neurons specialized. But that's you know that's 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 my conjecture at the moment. We could I could change my mind. Thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah, 
has a question next? Einar, you came to the stage and David, please go ahead. I caught it pretty late, but can you um, describe how what the role of maybe entropy in the, the voltage exchange of this information is and, and perhaps how it um, it interacts with physics and transcription of errors, de novo mutation, anything like that? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Uh, there's there's a lot there. Um, as far as as far as transcription goes, uh, these kind of networks are very tolerant to uh, to to all kinds of errors uh, in the hardware. Now, 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 clearly there are. You know, we can introduce very special mutations in certain ion channels to alter the way that to alter the way that um, uh, electrical signals are, are processed. So, so certainly there are specific mutations that will do that. But by and large, uh, these electrical circuits are incredibly tolerant. And in fact, we've, we've shown that, for example, something like a mutation in notch, which is this really important neurogenesis gene, that if you mutate it, you, you, you make a dominant mutation, it just completely trashes the brain of, let's say, a, a frog or, or any other animal. Uh, we've shown that we can um, on that on that background, we can we can still rescue and get a perfectly normal animal by uh, by by enforcing correct bioelectrical relationships between the cells, which is very not not that hard actually. It turns out that um, there are fairly simple ways of doing that. And so, so and 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 similarly, if we introduce mutations of like of things like KRAS, which normally make very nasty tumors, we can again uh, normalize those cells and keep them from from transforming. Again, if we force them to remain in co co correct electrical communication with their neighbors, and so, so that that whole system uh, not only can fix certain kinds, and I'm not claiming all, but certain kinds of errors in hardware, and it's uh, and in many cases it 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 overrides uh, the the things that uh, the things that um, uh, genetic errors are, um, are are going to cause otherwise. So um, as far as entropy specifically, we haven't <clears throat> we haven't calculated it. I think I think people um, have done it for neural signaling. We we haven't we haven't done it. Um, uh, we uh, we we no, we normally are looking more for things like uh, uh, causal emergence and. Um, other, you know, uh, and 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 that's I'm not I'm no expert at that anyway. Uh, but the, there are people in my in my group who have who have calculated some of that stuff. But but entropy specifically, we haven't looked at. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, Joe. Uh, how are you today? Uh, do you have a question? Doing well. Actually, I kind of, I'm hearing the parallels how chemical engineering first order reaction math is kind of used. And it sounds like you could also consider groupings as like an intermediate state. So you might have intermediate state requirements before it can cascade to a full reaction. Uh, I, uh, I'm not even sure I fully grasp that, but, but then again, my, my, my chemistry isn't all it could be. So, uh, maybe, uh, drop me an email and, 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 uh, just describe an example and then we can chat. I'm, I'm just, I, I don't know. In short, let's say if it took the potential of 10 cells to work together, but you had five yep. of them work together, you might yep. have an intermediate state where you might have to have two groupings of 10 or five oh, before you hit I a see. grouping of 10. I so it's just like mean. a, an interim pathway. And so, uh, Chemistry is 100% uh, 
first order reaction. It's just whether or not you've mapped the actual pathways correctly for the math. Interesting. Um, yeah, uh, could be, could be. Uh, that is still that is still something that uh, we 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 don't know um, a lot about. I mean, I'll give you I'll give, the the groupings and and the and the uh, the patterns are actually very. In, uh, I'll give you a simple example. A very interesting. So. Uh, when you when you look at the uh, the anterior end of a frog embryo um, before the face starts to form and before all the genes turn on that are required to form the face, there's this very specific electrical pattern that you see across the tissues, and this is a this is a spatial uh, pattern of, of of resting potential. We call it the electric face because this pattern is absolutely required for the right uh, gene expression and the right um, anatomy to emerge, meaning two eyes, a mouth, and in the, all in the right configuration. So there's this electric face. So, so we look at this electric face and we say, okay, I see the special pattern that makes an eye form. What happens if I introduce that pattern somewhere else in the embryo? And the way you do that is you basically uh, misexpress a particular uh, ion channel, let's say a kind of potassium channel, uh, somewhere else that uh, is able to reproduce that same um, sort of uh, bi bioelectric spot that normally causes an eye. So when you do this somewhere else, and it can be anywhere, it can be in the gut, it can be on the tail, it doesn't matter where it is, uh, those cells get the message and they build an eye. Um, now, one very interesting thing about it is, relevant to your question, is that uh, if we if we introduce that channel into a small group of cells, but not enough to make a, an eye on their own, what we see is that, and and the, and the way we know this is because we label the the the, the RNA that's uh, that's uh, going in with the with the science channel is also has uh, some uh, some some blue dye associated with it uh, that that tells us which cells we got. When you when I, when you actually section that new eye that appears, you see that some portion of the eye is blue, meaning the cells you got began making an eye. But what they also did is recruit a bunch of their neighbors to participate. And there's a bunch of cells in that in that eye that are in fact not labeled at all, meaning there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. There's no, there's no new ion channel, there's nothing different about them, except that a few of their neighbors said to them, we need to make an eye and, and, and this is how many cells we need, so, so we're all gonna make an eye. And so there's kind of two levels of instruction there. It's us instructing the cells that there needs to be an eye there, and then it's those cells instructing however many of their neighbors are required to make the rest, to make the rest of the eye. So in a context like that, I'm sure that there's some interesting things to be discovered about the grouping, as you say, to know uh, how do the cells m measure um, how many of them there are, and uh, to be able to read out, and I mean, we can do this a little bit already, but to really, really be, be good at it, uh, we need a lot more work to read out how does the collective remember how many cells an eye is supposed to have in the first place. So, so that, that the, the groupings in the, uh, uh, the distinction between the different patterns and how that overlays on different size tissues is, is, is a very important topic. It also, it also comes up in planaria because planaria use this bioelectric circuit to remember their shape. And, and we know this because we've, we've reprogrammed it and, and made two-headed planaria and planaria with heads of other species and stuff like that. But, but planaria are amazing at, at size control. So um, if you chop a planarian into pieces, each piece starts to regrow uh, the new things that it's missing, but the original uh, tissue starts to shrink so that when the new tissue appears, everything's properly uh, scaled. And if you starve them, they will shrink allometrically, so they just kind of shrink in, the, in proportionally. So when you see a small worm, you have absolutely no idea whether that's 
uh, 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 whether that worm was shrinking or growing or you know what what phase it's in because they just they just shrink and grow and keep everything in exact proportion. So I, th I think there are many 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 mysteries to be uh, to be uncovered there. I have a question about um, uh, sexual reproduction and um, embryogenesis and. Mm -hmm. To the extent that the uh, sperm contributes no mitochondria and, and uh, remarkably little cytoplasm compared to the egg, um, is there much of a line of research that would suggest that a lot of the genetic heuristics for uh, differentiation and localization and organogenesis are harbored uh, preferentially in the female of the species as opposed to the male of the species because of the uh, restricted uh, contributions yes. uh, of sperm. There's a whole bunch of studies about chickens that the chicken, the female chicken, based on all kinds of different criteria of how you stress that chicken, can change the shape, size, and bounty of that egg. And then it falls into the generation that hatches with it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there there are a lot of animals, more so than mammals, typically, but but there are a lot of animals where uh, many things are under control of what are called maternal cytoplasmic factors. So these are these are aspects of of um, uh, our, our RNA, protein, cytoskeletal structures, all kinds of stuff that is basically in the egg, outside the nucleus, not part of the genome, and, and only contributed by the mother. So um, some, lots of species rely on that very heavily. Mammals are sort of a little less that way. I mean, there is some of that, but, but the mammalian egg, relatively speaking, is quite small. Um, and uh, it's, it's, not as, it's not as obvious as it is for other systems. But, but yes, that, that certainly does happen in, in, in many creatures. If you had to guess the relative contributions to... Uh embryogenesis, organogenesis, differentiation, localization of what's in the maternal nucleus versus what's in the maternal cytoplasm. Do, can you even hazard a guess of relative contributions? I think it would depend on, on which species you're talking about. And, and I, I, can't, uh, I can't give you numbers like that. But uh, there are people who study exactly that stuff, and I think you can. I, I don't know if you can get to a percentage, but but I do think you can uh, get some information about that. But but in some in some species, it's going to be massive. In fact, some species can do parthenogenesis where you don't need the sperm at all. So so if you if you poke, um, you know, some some aphids do this, and some. Uh, I think even uh, I think I saw something like this uh, in a in a snake, a python, or something. They they found out could be could be parthenogenetic, where you basically trigger uh, cell division in the egg a, a different way without sperm whatsoever, and uh, and you get and you get quite far. In other in other species, you know, in frogs, you get uh, a certain amount of the way in, and then the embryos tend to die if there's no no sperm. Um, but I think I think also rabbits, if I recall correctly, can can do some of parthenogenesis. So so yeah, I mean, there's certainly more more contributions from the egg, but it's going to differ um, species to species. And and a related question: um, the recent uh, flurry of publications about um, what's been known for a long time in a, a, a mischaracterized uh, species is called a jellyfish. It's not actually a jellyfish, but that it under a shock like being left in an aquarium uh, and ignored for weeks, um, 
can reverse yeah, the, yeah. the life cycle. Yeah. Um, do you have reason to have a, a, a firm hypothesis about whether that kind of uh, reverse life cycle um, transformation um, without uh, passing through stem cells. So that was that was sort of the new news is that there's no stem cells involved in that reverse differentiation. Yeah. Um, that it's direct transformation at the cellular level. Yeah. Do you do you have any, have thoughts, any thoughts about whether those capabilities might exist in higher life forms? Um, or whether that's a, a feature of primitive organisms like uh, that particular miscalled jellyfish and planaria and and fungi. Yeah, um, I, I so 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 I don't know anything more than what you've seen in the in the papers. I don't have any insight knowledge on this, but uh, my own gut feeling is that uh, none of these things are um, impossible for. Let's for, for 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 let's say mammals. I think that even if uh, these kinds of uh, capabilities are generally not used in the in the in the life cycle of something like a mammal, m my gut feeling is that all of it can be uh, re 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 triggered if we knew what we were doing. So I, I I don't know whether this kind of thing happens normally in in the body. I mean, there are there are interesting examples to look at. For example, deer antler regeneration. So deer, uh, every year they regrow their antlers uh, up to a, a centimeter and a half of new bone growth per day. Now, um, I, you know, how, how much of that, uh, if, whether there's any trans differentiation there, whether there's what, what the stem cell contribution is, a lot of that remains to be, to be seen. But I think that anything that's possible, and so this organism is much like planaria, are telling us that it's possible, I think should be inducible in, uh, in, in, in mammalian cells if, if, if we knew uh, what we were doing. I, I don't believe it's, it's forever sort of gone in some way. I'm curious to, to bring it back to um, this, this spatial distribution in terms of voltage distributions mm -hmm. over longer stable periods of time. Um, I, I, I can appreciate it's really just the beginning of this, but um, have you started to get some insights into the different kinds of patterns that you could present a, um, a body of cells that are still embryonic um, versus, well, I suppose there's two directions to go in. The, um, the level of communication you can induce in terms of the pattern, and at what point is it too late um, in the differentiation development uh, for those cells to have already been committed or um, simply the cell mass itself to overwhelm the signal? Yeah, um, so, so, so yeah, we've been, we've been studying different kinds of uh, patterns and, and what you can uh, impose. And, we, and, and as you say, it's, we, we're, just at, we're just at the beginnings. But, um, you know, as far as uh, the aging, I mean, we've done things with adult, uh, full-on full adult animals. So, this, so the planaria are adults and the frogs in which we induce leg regeneration are adults. And there you have adult cells where it's tissue renewal, like in humans. So skin makes skin, muscle makes muscle, bone makes bone, and so on. Um, and it apparently is not too late, even even after they're they're full on adults. So uh, I expect I, I don't expect any reason why this stuff is 
um, restricted to the embryonic state. I mean, if, if we didn't have constant tissue renewal and replacement, we would basically be falling apart very quickly. I mean, even, even in adulthood, we're constantly under, um, under allostatic uh, kind of replacement with, of, of, of all the tissues and organs, you know, with the exception of, you know, maybe, maybe brain neurons or something. But, um, the, the, I, I think that, um, adulthood is, uh, is not, uh, that, that doesn't rule any of this out. No, go ahead, Serena. Well, okay. So in terms of then, um, and I understand that's the, um, you know, the genetic state then, um, and the expression profile for those cells in parts would set the context, whether that's that's in terms of um, metabolites or um, microRNAs or other types of, of cellular states. Um, in terms of, um, again, those, the, the, the patterns, it, it, you know, the, in the size and knowing how many cells to recruit, it's an interesting uh, to think through you know, the underlying algorithm of, of certain cellular states and responding to those spatial patterns and that would um, indicate completeness or incompleteness and, and the kind of factors that they would express to, um, to affect that, those, those macroscopic patterns. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're 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 doing basically that. We're we're building um, multi-scale models that include the electric circuit, the transcriptional networks underneath, and and then and then some of the cell movements and, and everything else on, 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 as a result of all that. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of the work is done in the absence of. Uh, uh, necessary changes in transcription. I mean, a lot of that, the, the transcriptional events and things like that tend to be downstream. They tend to be activated by uh, the decisions made by, by, by the bioelectric circuits. And I mean, the, you know, basically the, 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 the state changes um, of, of that circuit. But then downstream, of course, it, it triggers uh, the changes in gene expression and, and chromatin modifications and, and all those kinds of things. So, so yeah, I mean, this is, this is really critical. The modeling, the modeling is very important. Um, it's very difficult and, uh, we're, we're making, making progress enough, enough that we've been able to discover it, it, the, the models are good enough now that at least in some cases they can reveal specific therapeutics. So we've been able to choose ion channel drugs based on these models that actually repair defects, which, which um, to me was kind of uh, kind of a, sh a shocker that, uh, that that even worked, but, but it did. So, so I think we're on the right track, um, but there's a lot of work to do. These, these models are just, um, just, just getting, just getting started basically. Is there, um, is there a, a, a indication or a representation in the models of the transcription factors and efforts uh, upstream that would get a particular set of cells looking for particular voltage signals uh, we, in the first place hmm? yeah we can we can include those we haven't we haven't needed to yet in the sense that uh once the the only thing we've we've needed so far is just knowing which channels are expressed so 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 but but but, but one of the cool things about these circuits is that uh, even if the cells are completely identical transcriptionally, so if I if I have a field of cells that have exactly the same uh, transcriptional profile, so they're all making the same kinds of channels and the same kinds of uh, everything else, you can still get uh, spontaneous symmetry breaking and and all kinds of other interesting phenomena in the electric circuit that is not driven by any upstream 
uh, information out. Now, clearly in vivo, it's a combination of everything. So in vivo, of course, there are transcriptional changes that impinge on downstream events, but uh, but you can get quite a lot of computation on the in the electrical side that doesn't need um, that doesn't need any of the upstream stuff. So 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 we will eventually get to some of those, but it hasn't been uh, priority because uh, much of that is is just driven by the by the dynamics of uh, of the channels that, that doesn't require us to know what the what the upstream transcription is. But but for a complete story, of course, we'll have to eventually we'll have to add it. Could I? Um, yeah, thanks. Um, uh, I wanted to first check in with you if you have a few more minutes or if you have to leave because it's almost an hour and a half. And, uh, you know, I yeah, didn't I, want I, to. Yep, I've got, I've, got about, I've got about seven minutes, so I've got to, I've got to go at 5.30. But, um, uh, could I ask a quick question, Katarina? To ask about your, um, the recent paper that you published about um, the theory about how higher level individuality emerges from all these different little units, when you go really down to it, you know, to the molecular level, it's kind of impressive. So you presented this connectionist framework, uh, which I think is really interesting, a framework. So I wanted to ask, like, from experiments, did you um, see kind of I don't know if you did the experiments in that direction, but um, how many units, let's say from, let's say Xenobots or so, would you need and, and how tightly would they need to be connected kind of to, to get this um, like higher level individuality uh, that you know, you cannot take apart anymore to get the specific behavior of this let's say Xenobots or so, I, that would be really interesting, at least for me <laughs> to, to yeah, learn about. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think that uh, just keeping in mind that, that in the Xenobot case, we haven't yet made any real claims about um, what the uh, individuality or, 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 or cognitive capacity there are, because we don't know yet. So, so specifically on the Xenobots, I, I, I don't know. What, what we have been doing, is setting up uh, minimal models, and this isn't published yet, but we've been setting up very minimal models of, uh, of, of embryonic cells in a controlled environment, meaning, meaning in vitro in a dish, to look at where uh, and at what, uh, at what point um, collective navigation of morphospace begins. So when, when do they kick over from individual cell behavior, so crawling around in a dish as individual cells, to working together to achieve some kind of very simple morphogenetic uh, outcome. So, so we, we, ha we have been studying that. Um, I don't know, I, I don't have any answers yet, so stay tuned. Um, there, will be, there will be, you know, some work on that that I hope comes out later this year. And I'm also working on um, a more theoretical piece, which is kind of a, um, uh, a follow-up to that, uh, to, the, to the selves and the Matame paper, which basically addresses the very early steps of uh, the individuation of a self. So like, how does this process of autopoiesis arise in the first, like, how does a self arise in the first place? What are some of the, some of the earliest steps that need to happen? So that's kind of a, a theory paper, and then uh, later you'll, you'll, you know, hopefully we'll see how some of that plays out in real, um, real uh, cellular systems. I'm very looking forward to this um, because I think this will solve a lot of, you know, how mind emerges and 
also probably for AI, um, for further AI development. Yep. 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 Um, I for, think for, that for sure. For sure. For sure. This uh, to to the extent that this um, that this uh, you know a theory that I that I've been uh, developing uh, addresses that that uh, the question of uh, uh, for individuation from scratch. It's absolutely going to be relevant to the development of uh, of strategies for for um, for AIs, and so we're we're absolutely keeping uh, keeping an eye on that. There will be a uh, a, a different paper specifically on this this question of. Um, how how to use this kind of information for a new kind of uh, uh, intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence? That 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 paper will be coming to later this year. Yeah, because you know, back to the hardware versus software, and you know, in the cells, how you get them to solve different problems to rejuvenate. You know, I think this is the key knowledge that we also need to for a general more generalized AI because. It, Kind of the same principle right you have the hardware um, and then if you can make them solve anything by knowing how to trigger this um i think that will be really important for the future yep yep, yep. I, I agree completely john you had the last question please go ahead yeah i'm just wondering from your understanding of regenerative processes and all of the research um, and hyping that's going on for life extension of different methods uh, for restoring some of these earlier, uh, you know, uh, embryologically active um, mechanisms. Is there anything you, if you had to predict which of the various life extension uh, practices related to regenerative medicine are most likely to bear fruit, what, what, what would you guess? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, um, uh, just to be to be clear, uh, I'm not an expert in life extension. Uh, we haven't really done any work on aging in my lab, so I, I you know take everything I say here with a with a grain of salt. But um, no, no, nor do I, by the way, know all of the strategies that are being used. So I'm not up on all of the you know nutraceuticals and 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 all the metabolics that people are using. Like I'm I'm just not up on all that. But um, what I will say is this: uh, I suspect that the approaches focused on things like uh, reprogramming are cellular reprogramming so so yamanaka factors and things like this i think those have to be used very very carefully because i think they really have the potential to end up with cells that are ready to do something they don't know what to do and as a result there's going to be some sort of um neoplasia or some sort of overgrowth i think i think i i don't know what the right strategy for for rejuvenation is but i think that the key to all of that is uh figuring out how cells know what a healthy set of organs looks like in the first place like until we until we solve that problem i don't see how we could get uh, proper rejuvenation unless we get lucky i mean we could get lucky and, and, and sort of stumble onto some some master regulator that that might exist but I, I think fundamentally it's going to require an understanding of where cells get, the, get where collectives of cells get their marching orders as far as what to uh, what to make, and then and then we can we can then then we can all be like plenary. Great. Um, well, thank you so much for coming back and um, sharing your thoughts, your research, um, and your theories. 
with us. It's really exciting every time you come. And um, maybe beginning of next year, you come back <laughs> to sure, give us sure. updates. Yeah, about happy to. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, so, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, you, you guys ask uh, amazing questions. Uh, really, uh, really uh, makes me think, uh, pushing kind of beyond the envelope of what we know. So that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm happy to come back. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so yeah. much. We wish you all the best um, for your research all the funding you kind of next time i will ask you i wanted to ask you how did you get funding for all these different projects because we had Miguel Nicolides here and so they said some people say oh it's really hard if i want to start doing cancer research but i'm known for this it's kind of hard so one day i will ask you this question but that's for next time and okay. we wish you all the best and um hear you back hopefully um in a few months thank you cool thank you so much yeah, yeah keep keep in touch <laughs> Yeah, thanks everybody. Keep in touch. Thank you. And right. um, yeah, thanks everyone for coming, participating, asking questions. Uh, follow the club if you like discussions like this. We will have more rooms next week. Um, uh, we will have Monday two rooms um, about synthetic embryos generated ex utero from mouse, so kind of um, artificial embryos in artificial uterus. And uh, we will have um, on Tuesday pulse light for microbial inactivation with Dr. Domici. It's um, a different type of way to fight basically um, antibiotic resistant uh, germs. <clears throat> we will have um, a room about deep brain stimulation for depression that was done quite successfully. And green materials inspired by nature. This will be really interesting. My Dr. Harriton, he is a marine biologist and he developed very strong glues and different materials from copying basically um, how um, marine um, organisms do it. And it's really interesting what he did there. And uh, on Friday, we'll have Dr. Onan from MIT uh, talking about his artificial neurons that he developed and they are 10,000 times faster than regular neurons and um, yeah so thank you come back and uh, enjoy your weekend everyone thanks thanks everyone okay I close the room in three two one bye everyone thank you bye thanks <laughs> <laughs>